ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. History never repeats, but it often rhymes. Mm. So said Mark Twain, I think. Oh, um, you got it. Is it Mark Twain? It was Mark what Twain. I, I'm so you know, proud of you. Well, It's done. one of those quotes, isn't it? Sorry, everybody. That's Scott Stevens, my car is <laughs> breaking the fourth wall. We'll lead Ali's my name. The show's the minefield. Let's just get on with it. It's one of those things where it's a quote you hear so often and it's probably misattributed. Mm. I may as well have said Taylor Swift said it. Yep, something that's like right. That. Um, but you're telling me I got it right. You got that's it good. right. I'm so proud. I feel like my work here is done. You can just take, okay. take, take the rest of the show. I'm going to retire in peace. Okay. I'll just talk to our guest. I mean, uh, we could. I don't don't think my guest would have any problem stepping in and filling the hour. Oh, wow. Scott's genuinely tipped out. (laughs) (laughs) I thought Scott had made good. (laughs) No, this is a topic about which I am immodestly excited. I'm so looking forward to us doing it. Anyway, I'm not going to say Well, it's not just a topic, really. It's a a mini-series. I was going to call it a series, but it's too short, really, Mm. to be a series. What's the minimum number you can have for a series? Two is repetition, three is a series, right? Okay, well, then we're not doing a series. We're not doing doing a repetition. We're doing a couple shows. Why don't you explain what the repetition is that we're doing? All right. And we'll go from there. So we wanted to select two dates from the 20th century, both portentous dates, seismic decisions that were taken, both decisions, I think, both cast an interesting light on some of the things that we're talking about and debating and thinking through now, but also what we're talking about and thinking through and debating now casts a kind of different evaluative light on the dates or the decisions that took place on those dates as well. It's really interesting, I think, holding the things that preoccupy us now with decisions that were made in extremely difficult circumstances. I won't tell you what's coming up next week. You're just going to have to find out. It's going to surprise you, but it also won't surprise you. Um, But things that have kind of overtaken us at this particular moment invite us to reconsider decisions that were taken because those decisions, maybe we reevaluate them now as being wrongly taken, as taking us down a wrong path, as maybe depriving us of a precedent that we would have needed in order to find our way through a difficult moment, or the very temptation to reevaluate shows the extent to which maybe we're not thinking as clearly as we should be about the situation that we are currently facing. So this isn't so much the moral use of history. This isn't an is that took place in the 20th century and therefore an ought that extends to our present moment. Rather, it's that the similarities and the differences between those times and ours, but also the courage, the difficulty, the stakes that were involved in those particular moments and the consequences that follow may well cast the kind of choices, the kind of moral evaluations that we need to make in a different, in a harsher, but maybe hopefully a clearer light. Does that set us up nicely enough? Yeah, I think it's fraught, though. It is. Oh, I'm glad you would accept that. Yeah. I thought I was going to have to argue that point. No, 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 go. Tell me, though. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> how do we avoid this danger of reading current circumstances mm. into past moments? Mm, that's right. And thereby transforming them into something they just weren't. Not mm. that they're enlightened by our moment, but actually they're being colonised by our moment, where... We're taking our moment and and superimposing them. How do we avoid that? Yeah. There's this sort of weird paradoxical relationship with history, isn't there, that the further we get from a moment, the clearer we see, but also the less we see because the less we know. 
maybe what we think is clearer is actually a mirage because right. we know less That's about right. what's going on. And so can I suggest something to you as a kind of a regulative principle? Mm. Um, I think you're right that history tends to embolden us with a degree of moral harshness to which we're not entitled. Yep. And that's why I think as a kind of regulative stance, the position that we ought to adopt when it comes to these decisions and the very difficult stakes that were being weighed is, for the most part, wherever humanly possible, one of generosity and humility. In other words, simply to say, I don't know what I would have done, but I sure as hell would not necessarily have acted wiser than that person did. That's, I'd be very interested to see if that happens next week. Yeah, next week is one of these tough ones that I feel, I almost feel that history has swung a little bit too much onto the side of someone who should be thought of more harshly than we do. Now you're making me want to talk about next week. Let's yeah, no, no. Go down that road. We're not going to. But, I, but the point that you're making, I think, is important. Hmm. Historical um, humility. C.S. Lewis had a really nice little quip about this. He said, one of the pretensions of modernity is that we necessarily experience and benefit from a kind of advance, a superiority, as the result mm. of the accomplishments of our forebears. Whereas, in fact, he said, history tends to narrow. History forecloses choices. So we find ourselves looking back on the choices that were available to those in the past with a degree of awe and envy because they had so many more choices available to them. Whereas we, the hollow men, he called us, are uh, the inheritors of the decisions that have been made and therefore foreclosed options to which we now no longer have access. I think it's maybe a little bit of an overstatement, but to, to some extent, seeing the process of history not in as, a, as an advance, but as a foreshortening as a kind of curtailment, uh, there is something in that that I think should spark a degree of humility and um, maybe not reverence, but certainly respect for those who made difficult decisions in extremely difficult circumstances. I wonder, though, yeah, sort of attracted to that description, but I, uh, I wonder if it makes the same mistake of <laughs> presupposing of some kind of linearity that, that actually the better thing is to understand that then's a mess, now's a mess. <laughs> This is the nature of the human condition. Yeah. We are in an abode of mess. Yeah. And one of the beautiful and terrible things about that is that very often the virtuous course of action isn't clear in the moment or since. And so it's almost like the point is the wrestling. The point is whether you just give up on pursuing virtuous action at all or you recognize that it takes an effort and you may arrive at the wrong conclusion or the correct conclusion, but the effort that's demanded of you becomes, in a way, the point of the messiness, right? Yeah, you're I, right. Can I just trump that, though, with one little addition? I don't yeah. fundamentally disagree, but let me just sort of add a little something to it. This is something I've learned kind of deeply and richly from the American philosopher Stanley Cavell, that fundamentally the guiding underlying moral principle that holds together the possibility of democratic life is that at various points, at various times, at various places in our life together, we are and we become one another's teachers. Um, that's not to say that everyone is virtuous and therefore we derive from one another only virtue, but rather there is something about the thronness of our experience of democratic life, the principle 
of egalitarianism and therefore of limited knowledge, of epistemic humility that ought to go along with that, of the fact that democracy is sustained and buoyed by the very possibility of second chances, that just because we screw up one time, that doesn't mean that we aren't going to maybe get it a little bit more right the next time. This is all just another way of saying that at various points, at various times in our shared life together, we are, we become one another's teachers. And I think we lose something fundamental about the conditions of our common life when we cut ourselves off and we say that that person, I already know what was motivating them. I already know what their agenda was. They have nothing to say that I need to hear. Uh, if Even it, if they're historic figures who can no longer speak? Exactly right. Exactly right. right. Yeah. Okay. So sometimes I, when I spoke before about the present moment colonizing the past moment, I, th I think what I mean to talk about there is something like that, where we presume that actually we have things to teach the past. That's mm. really the proper role of things. Mm, beautiful. But also that really all the past is, is raw material for the prosecution of our own obsessions. Yeah. I don't know. I'm sure you can because you do a lot more of this than I do. You can think of all kinds of examples from popular or high culture where we do this, right? Where we make a modern thing set in a previous period and then make the story of that previous period all about the issue of our moments. Yep. These days that would be something about gender probably, mm. maybe race, probably a little less race because depending on the period you're talking about, race probably was more front and centre and some of those things. But you know what I'm talking about, right? This, this sort of thing where actually what this isn't is some kind of I don't know, inhabiting of the past or even some kind of reflection on the past. It's just a way of lionising the present or prosecuting an argument within the controversies mm -hmm. of the it, It's called the scourge of presentism. And if you, yeah. want to, if you want to find a really horrible example, which is to say a perfect example of it, I mean, I've shared with you off air that I'm no great fan of Greta Gerwig, either as an actor or as a filmmaker. I thought her film, I haven't seen Barbie yet. You've, you keep telling me that I should. I don't know that I, dear listener, gonna, this is behind the curtain now. <laughs> Scott and I had a brief conversation, actually no, a fairly lengthy conversation about whether we should do a show on Barbie, either as one of our not quite a book club things, mm -hmm. which by the way, we have one coming up, more on that later, or just as a show, and Scott declined. Yeah. I just couldn't see myself sitting in a cinema, fundamentally, and no one that I know would go with me. If you wanted I'd to accompany... I'd have okay. flown to Brisbane to Anyway, I was just going to say Greta Gerwig's <laughs> film Little Women, based on Louisa May Alcott's novel, I think is an arch example of uh, presentism in action, of just of not paying heed to the concerns and the lessons and the wisdom of the past and sort of imposing a degree of high-minded self-conceit on it mm. instead. All right. So we've identified the we danger. Have. That said, let's just charge head forth <laughs> into it. Um, what's the specific historical moment All right. and the, the contemporary moment lovely. that the are linked today? The date is the 8th of September, 1974. The US president was Gerald Ford. He had not been president for very long. He had not, in fact, faced an election because he assumed the presidency after Richard Nixon resigned on the uh, 9th of August that same year. Gerald Ford had also not been vice president that long because he assumed the vice presidency in early 1973 when Richard Nixon's then vice president, Spiro Agnew, uh, resigned after almost certainly standing to face charges on embezzlement, receipt of bribery, corruption, 
uh, during his time, to some extent as vice president, but also as governor of Maryland. So Richard Nixon, we know, resigned uh, as a result of the Watergate reporting and then the Watergate impeachment inquiries that ran their way through the House of Representatives and were getting ready to run their way through the Senate. We can flesh some of this out later. Richard Nixon resigned rather than being found guilty by the Senate of impeachable crimes and misdemeanors and thereby being removed or and subsequently, consequently, being removed from office. Within a month of him resigning, of Nixon resigning, Gerald Ford went through a couple of interesting different stages. At one point, he vowed that he would not pardon Nixon prior to the resumption of a criminal case against him that at that stage would have continued under Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski. Now, Jaworski is a really interesting figure here, by the way, Willie. I won't go on about this, but Archibald Cox, who was the special prosecutor who was dismissed by Nixon after an outcry, Jaworski, who was a, let's just call him a sympathetic Republican, and therefore, to some extent, to some extent, could be relied upon to being somewhat more sympathetic to Nixon than perhaps Archibald Cox had been. Uh, but Jaworski would have continued the criminal case of obstruction, of the payment of monies, of, oh, we don't have to go through the, the Watergate litany. We can do that maybe a little bit later. But what's interesting here is that Ford, after Nixon's resignation and before his pardon, said that uh, he wouldn't confer a pardon on Nixon prior to the resumption of a criminal case against him. Within two days of making that public pledge, Ford essentially changed his mind. He changed his mind to no small degree because Jaworski himself, the special prosecutor, because if we want to think about a current analog, this would be Jack Smith, advising Ford that he would not object to a pardon on the grounds that bringing Nixon to fair trial would be almost impossible because of the sheer amount of publicity, because of the hearings that had already been held, that had been uh, televised, that had been publicized, that had been reported, because of how divisive a figure Nixon was, and also because of the delay that would almost certainly pertain. So a criminal proceeding couldn't simply kick off. It would be delayed by at least a year. It would then go on for at least another year, if not two. And Jaworski also worried that Nixon would be found essentially not to be eligible for a fair trial and therefore would be running headlong towards some kind of acquittal. On that basis, Gerald Ford decided that the best thing for the country because of the divisions that had been inflicted upon it under the conditions of the Watergate inquiry, because of the way that the life of the nation had been consumed by the divisiveness, the divisions of Nixon himself and what Watergate seemed to require of loyalists and opponents. But also because of the unlikelihood that a former president could achieve, could receive natural justice in a forthcoming criminal trial. Ford said that even though public opinion was against him, even though he would certainly suffer politically, for this decision, that he felt, and I, I just want to read this quite specifically, he felt, quote, 
My conscience tells me clearly and certainly that I cannot prolong the bad dreams that continue to reopen a chapter that is closed. My conscience tells me that only I, as president, have the constitutional power to firmly shut and seal this book. My conscience tells me it is my duty not merely to proclaim domestic tranquility, but to use every means that I have to ensure it. I do believe that the buck stops here, that I cannot rely upon public opinion polls to tell me what is right. And with that, he pardoned Richard Nixon. What's so interesting, Waleed? The public turned against him viciously. His Republican which, colleagues... Which I think he knows, right? Yes, he does. That's the important part of that story. Uh, Senate Republicans turn against him. He is roundly criticized for doing this, because not least because they believe that he's thrown the Republican Party effectively on the pyre, uh, that they're going to be immolated in the next election. The public turns against him. The press turns against him. His... Senate and House Republicans turn against him, all of which he is anticipating. But I think what's so interesting here is that it was only a matter of three or four years. I should also say, by the way, I don't know how many people know this, impeachment proceedings were threatened against Ford himself because it was believed that he was acting corruptly. In other words, kind of quid pro quo. Nixon gives him the job and he pardons Nixon. Impeachment proceedings were threatened but not followed through after Ford gave a long and I think quite searching testimony to the House Judicial Committee. It's very, very interesting. And then there was a kind of chapter that was turned. It was believed that impeachment is not not the way to proceed. It was too traumatic for the nation. What's so interesting then is that the very people who criticized Ford for about two decades then acknowledged that it was a courageous thing to do, that it was a right thing to do, that it may, might even have been a self-sacrificial thing not to subject the nation to yet a further criminal trial of a former president. Fast forward to today, and this is the context that we're kind of thinking about this in the light of, and the multiple indictments of Donald Trump. I don't want to say anything more about the multiple indictments now. What's interesting here is that a prosecution of Nixon would have been instructive because it would have given a kind of template for the limits of a trial of a former president. Where the analog doesn't quite hold up is that Nixon was ineligible to stand for office again. He couldn't have run for re-election. Trump, Which is really important. Really important. Like, really important. Trump, because the it, idea of even charging a, forget president. Yeah. A presidential candidate. candidate. That's right. That's right. I mean, there's a reason that there's a longstanding convention against doing such Mm. because it potentially corrupts the whole political process, especially if your opposition is in control of the levers of government. Can you kind of flesh this out, though? Can you explain why? Because I'm I'm not sure how much people have really thought this through. um, I'm not sure I have much more to say on it. I mean, I think, so there's a convention within the Department of Justice that you do not issue proceedings or charges against someone who is a presidential candidate, right? Now, there's an argument about whether or not Donald Trump is yet, technically, because I don't know at what point these things become official as opposed to... But It'll be the Republican primary in the first half of next year. Right. Okay. So easy now, I don't know. But that's kind of, I think, just... That's using technicality to avoid the issue. We, we, we can say that in terms of the opinion polls, he is the prohibitive front-runner for the Republican right. nomination. And... and it's very easy to imagine the reasons you would want such a convention. Um, if one party holds the levers of government and the other party has a candidate that is potentially dangerous, 
to your political prospects, I mean, not to the world. And you have the power to direct or influence what gets investigated, then it's there are obvious dangers there, right? It becomes got, the political persecution of one's opponents. Yes. Yeah. And the corruption of legal processes with politics. It sounds like, actually, it's the subordination of the legal process through politics. Mm. But really, when you think about it, it's the reverse. Yeah, that's right? right. It's trying to protect legal processes from political intervention and prevent the law becoming a political tool. If you are inclined to think that isn't really that big a worry, especially because you don't like Donald Trump, I want you to imagine the scenario where Donald Trump is the president and his Republican machine, to the extent it's a machine, um, holds the levers of power and there's a Democrat candidate that he doesn't like. I don't know, maybe Hillary Clinton or, <laughs> or whatever. Or, 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 well, they don't even go that far. What about his predecessor? Mm. If, sure. if the first act following a transfer of power is to prosecute, to persecute one's predecessor, that then becomes a kind of existential deterrent against any smooth and peaceful transfer of power from one administration to the next. Right. So this convention is really important, and it's why the difference between the Trump and Nixon scenarios is so fundamental. Like, I don't know if it's enough to say that one doesn't really cast light on the other, but yeah, it's, it's but it is interesting. To say they are very, very different. Yeah, it is interesting the degree to which, though, people who even just 10 years ago said that they understand the wisdom in Ford's decision are now saying what that act of pardoning Nixon did is it elevated a president and it elevated a former president above the law so that the president can no longer be subject to the law in the same way. The president thereby becomes above the law in a way that no other citizen within the polity of the nation, in fact, is. Yeah, but that's only true. I mean, I understand that that criticism. And it's a similar argument you get in the context of what do you do about a strongman dictator uh, and you want to remove them from power? Do you give them immunity, for example? And in the end, usually that's the wiser course of action, right? You let them live in some mansion in another country just so they can get out of power. Mm -hmm. I know it's not, they're not perfectly analogous situations, but the principle I'm talking about there is you're sacrificing a particular reckoning of justice for the sake of some broader social good. The thing I would say about Ford's decision is it wasn't a forever and always in every circumstance decision. So the fact that he It was so singular, wasn't it? Yeah. And, but also Watergate itself, there was a peculiar trauma to it that it inflicted upon the life and the consciousness of the nation. Right. So you could imagine scenarios where a president would be prosecuted and there wouldn't be a pardon. I suspect we're about to see one. <laughs> right. So while I, I understand the argument that this sort of elevates the president above the law, I'm not entirely or ultimately convinced by it because I think what that was was a decision not to prosecute in a particular case. And actually, police and prosecutors make that sort of decision all the time mm, with respect right. to different people. It's just they very often don't make headlines. I understand it's different in the case of a, a ruler because part of the basis of a just society is the rule of law and the idea that everyone, even the king, even the president, is subject to it. And so there is a particular symbolic resonance to someone being pardoned. But here's a point I think we shouldn't overlook. He wasn't rendered not guilty. He was pardoned. Mm. And in the process of being pardoned, 
there is an acknowledgement. There's a declaration yes, of wrongdoing. That's right. That's right. This is both the best and the worst thing about it. Yeah, right. That's true. You're pardoned, therefore we are saying you did wrong, and you, by accepting the pardon, maybe are accepting you did wrong. On the other hand, we're all saying you did wrong and not going to be punished for it. So, mm. so it's the best and the worst aspect of it. But I just, I'm just wary, and maybe this is part of the earlier conversation we're having about the nature of history. I'm wary about extending Ford's decision into a precedent that therefore covers all other decisions. I think the better argument is by not going ahead with the prosecution of Nixon, by not holding him ultimately to account, we lack a precedent, we lack a template, we lack experience. The problem is the counterfactual that we is unknowable to us is what that precedent would have been. <laughs> and, and maybe it would have been a terrible one that would have mm. left us even further in the dark well, as to how we would go about yeah, this properly. Can I say two, two really quick things about that? Well, one thing about that and the other thing taking us, I think, just slightly one step further. Uh, it is worth remembering that six months, I mean, a little more than six months after the first lot of Watergate reporting began to appear, Nixon won the 1972 election. He didn't just win the 1972 mm. election. Well, he won 49 states. This is a fabulously popular president. There is every reason to believe in many respects, uh, as Ford undoubtedly did when he accepted the vice presidency, that Nixon was going to be able to weather this particular storm. Um, so there's something about this where the absence of corruption, the absence of a quid pro quo, uh, Nixon gets the pardon, Ford gets the presidency. Um, the absence of any sort of indication of corruption, I think, points to the degree to which the presidency uh, ought to be handled in a manner that is uh, different precisely because of the precedent, the template that can be formed, that can be created in the way that one deals with it. This is the thing I think that uh, Leon Jaworski and Gerald Ford were both keenly aware of. The nightmare scenario is if Nixon were to be tried criminally and then to be acquitted, mm. and the pall that that then casts on the activities of the House and the prospective activities of the Senate in the first place. So there are these monumental risks that are baked into, I think, uh, the very way which one treats the presidency. But I think this brings us kind of helpfully to the particular moment. The very fact that Nixon could not uh, run again, and the very fact that in a very real way, the prosecution of Donald Trump is going to intersect with, is going to overlay, is going to interrupt an election this raises, I think, the stakes of what it is we're talking about in a manner that is sort of too important to pass up. Um, for Nixon, these were crimes that were publicized, that were interrogated, that were widely known. And I think mm. you're right, the act and of the pardoning, verdict was delivered. And the yeah. verdict was delivered not least by Senate Republicans who indicated yeah. to Nixon that they did not have his support. It was delivered in two ways. It was delivered by the people and then it was delivered by politicians by Congress. Yeah. And so he resigns because he can see the writing on the wall, which is the big difference with Trump. I think the really difficult thing here, and this is where I think the analogy with Ford and just how much we can learn from Ford begins somewhat, I mean, I like his prudence. I like his valuing of the body politic. I do think there are real dangers surrounding the prosecution of Donald Trump. Um, I think that there is a lot more shakiness surrounding the indictments that have been leveled against him and the unlikelihood of a fair trial. 
Um, all of those things, I think, are part of our deliberations here. The one thing, the one thing that gives me pause is that you could say that, especially in his most recent indictment, the charges that have been leveled against him have to do with, I think, what can only be referred to as the democratic sanctity of the transfer of power from one administration to the next. If the risk of the prosecution of Nixon was that it would bring about, it would unleash a kind of age of impeachment, that each new president runs the risk of either being impeached by Congress or being prosecuted by their by those that come after them. I think if the charges that have been leveled against Donald Trump are simply allowed to pass or are not prosecuted, the risk that that runs, given the fact that there were fraudulent measures that were taken in order to try to undo the results of an election— that there were various forms of either incitement to violence, and I'm not talking about those that marched on the Capitol, but there were forms of the contemplation of violence in the very perpetration of fraud. And there was such damage done to, let's just call it the epistemology of voting itself, the epistemology of the Electoral College, the ability of the Electoral College uh, to do what the Constitution envisions as doing. If the risk of the prosecution of Nixon was that that would unleash the age of impeachment, of successive impeachments of presidents, then it seems to me that the risk of not prosecuting Donald Trump in this particular instance is that it unleashes the possibility of an age of democratic illegitimacy, where no election is simply accepted, where every election is both legally contested and, let's just put it this way, epistemologically mucked up. And that obviously was part of uh, Donald Trump's allegedly fraudulent strategy, to simply muck up the certainties that are mutually accepted in the transfer of power from one administration to the next. So my concern here, and, and this really needs to be weighed, I think, against the prudential concerns that I believe Gerald Ford embodied, embodied and embodied nobly. My concern is, is that if this were not dealt with well, and I, I would have to say that I think an acquittal of Donald Trump would yield the same result, it would in fact usher in a scourge, uh, a tempest, a hurricane of electoral instability and illegitimacy where the process of voting can no longer be mutually agreed to as a right, as a ritual to which voters pledge their fealty every four years. Mm, although arguably he... That's already happened, and even a conviction wouldn't change that. I think the political con the difference in the political context between current day United States and the United States of the Ford Nixon era are really important mm. here. A, a, There's a kind of epistemic incommensurability. That's true, but I think a conviction. But I think a conviction of a former president, a conviction of a future candidate, could provide sufficient deterrent to ward off would be Trump's yeah, in future maybe. from doing something similar. It could also just trigger a civil war. Yes, it could. Let's bring in a guest. Where are we going to turn for prudence, for wisdom, for historical insight? Well, it has to be Timothy Lynch. He's professor of American politics at the University of Melbourne. His latest book is The Shadow of the Cold War, American Foreign Policy from George Bush Sr. to Donald Trump. Tim, welcome back to the minefield. Thanks very much, Scott, and great to see you all lead. So take us Go away. Go for it, Tim. Just what do you want well, to say? Well, I, I think you, you guys have covered it far beyond my poor means to add or detract, but I will uh, add and detract some. <laughs> I, I think, so this analogy, of course, like all analogies, is not a perfect one. 
And the key difference you've hit on is that we're dealing with a cross-party issue here. Mm. So the guy that's being potentially presented with this theoretical pardon idea is a Democratic president, and he's being asked to consider pardoning a Republican. That's not the case with Nixon and Ford. The other point I think that needs to be brought in is, again, it goes back to your very good initial discussion about what I would call historical elitism, that where we are now is, is in some way better or more progressive or a superior version of the way things used to be. And I'd ask you to consider, and it's what Walid has just referenced, America has gone through a civil war. And in part, that civil war was uh, catalyzed, was caused by a disputed election result Mm, in 1860, when Lincoln was, it caused 11 states of the union to, to walk out of the nation. So it's not as if we're dealing with a situation which is brand new. I know it's new in the sense that this is the first indicted president or former president, not even Nixon got to that point. But we've seen much more severe consequences stemming from political disputes over elections that have far greater consequences than mere legal ones because the United States is a, is a civil war nation. And like all nations that have had that divorce. It's like a divorce in a family. You may think you've gotten over it, but eventually it will reassert itself in some form. And I think that's what we're seeing here with with the Trump indictment. Lots of other things I I think we could bring into this this discussion. One of the counterfactuals, if that's the right way to describe it, would be to consider two things. How would, if Trump had burgled the Watergate, sent in these five burglars, would the Republican Party now line up against him in a way that they didn't? What do you think they about didn't? that, actually? Well, I, I, I think, yes, they would well, line up. I think up. they would. I think they would see that crime as as a mere caper. Yeah. Something or that, they'd deny it. Or, or they would deny Another it. Another state-to-state so state that's, that's what I think has shifted. The other, uh, I think, case to draw on here is Bill Clinton, the last mm, president right. before Trump to face impeachment. And again, a very clear lining up of the partisan lines where only I don't think he got a single detractor from the Democratic side and and got off with it. So I think the the wider context we have to recognise here, and I think you guys have hit on it, is the death of bipartisanship. If you go back to the middle 1970s and you look at the graphs, that's the last great high point of inter-party cooperation, bipartisanship. And I think that allows for the necessary outrage around Watergate to lead to the resignation of a president. We don't have that now. So this pulls me in opposite directions, it seems, with equal force. Mm. Because where you can, I think I described it as epistemic incommensurability. Yes. Where there is such a blockage where I've called America a post-democracy because it can't realise the preconditions of democracy anymore, such as even an agreed set of facts in the broad sense of things, right? Where it's reached that point, where any fact can simply be turned into a basis for the continue continuation of your pre-existing political narrative, right? Conspiracy on the one hand, Trump's incorrigible evil on the other. That strengthens, in one way, the case for proceeding with prosecution, because the law is the there are no political levers to to pull anymore there are no there's no persuasion there is nothing to be gained from deference there is none of that so prosecution's it all you have now is the force of the law mm. right on the other hand it means that any use of that <laughs> 
will simply inflame the situation in a space. So where I've ended up landing is I really don't like the New York indictments. Mm. So this is to do with payments to Stormy Daniels being categorised. Not that they won't stand up. I don't know. That's for the lawyers to figure out. But just that, that feels like trying to get him on something that's mm. approximating a technicality mm. in the grand scheme of things. Can I just say, well, I, that that feels to me like the legal equivalent of the first impeachment attempt against yeah. Trump. It was possibly, yeah. It was preemptive. There was something that maybe provided a kind of sound basis, but it could not help but come across as partisanly loaded, and that then came to taint the further impeachment attempt, which was better founded but which was already corrupted by the first attempt. I think we've got the same thing yeah. with the Manhattan district attorney and then what's followed. Especially yeah. because also that district attorney campaign on getting Trump. That's right. So exactly there's right. Part, and that, it's unfortunate that happened, I think, in a way because of what it's meant for subsequent ones. The second impeachment, I am unsure about tending towards not liking very much. This one I find very hard to argue against. Yeah, it's true. You are... Talking about something that, as Scott articulated, goes so fundamentally to the heart of democracy. And let's be clear on the charge here. It's not that Trump tried to overturn an election result. The charge is that Trump knew he'd lost Mm. and then through basically disinformation, intimidation, whatever, sought to overturn it. So if Trump's defence could be, I genuinely thought I'd won and I was just trying. And when he makes that defence, if he can establish that, he's acquitted which has its own sort of problems. But if we take the charges at their face value, if if it is true that Donald Trump knew he lost that election but was trying to subvert it anyway, then I don't see an alternative, really, but to charge, but to indict, but to prosecute. And a pardon would be interesting because he would have to accept that he did wrong. But, of course, he's the kind of character who could easily accept the pardon, turn around and go, I didn't do anything wrong. Can I tell you both, though, the doomsday scenario? that this latest indictment does in fact come to court before the election, that it extends beyond the election, that Trump is unsuccessful in being elected, and that he is acquitted post-election. That, it seems to me, is the doomsday scenario. That represents then the epistemic collapse in faith in two-party politics. Yes, so I I think I... I share some of that. I wonder if I could just indulge in a bit of Democrat kicking at this point, because uh, it seems so much of the narrative is framed by the idiocy of the Republican Party in its defence of Trump's, I think, more stupid claims than fraudulent claims. We we can argue about that. Mm. But the Democrats have an interest here. Uh, Ford, of course, had an interest in the maintenance of domestic tranquility and uh, protecting the general welfare. I don't see that in the Democratic position What Biden needs is a bleeding but nominated Trump. He's got no interest in sanctifying, purifying the American political system by a pardon. In fact, his contemplation of a pardon, as far as he's going to enter into that, is is going to be around his own electoral prospects. So I, I don't think the narrative that we have, and we tend to fall into that it's all the Democrats and their absurd loyalty to, to Trump. You mean, sorry, the Republicans. Sorry, the re- Republicans. I'm just checking you were listening. <laughs> yes, it, the death of bipartisanship is a double fault. It's, it's a shared responsibility of both parties. And I want that centre, which I think Ford articulated and acted in the interests of really rather well, to reassert itself. But it's a hope rather than an expectation. We have a an ideological, too too highly ideologicalized 
parties that only see advantage in furthering that ideological division and will, just just to carry on the point that I think Waleed was making and possibly to counter it, there is no way in which any subsequent trial of President Trump, former President Trump, after he's faced two impeachments, failed impeachments, is going to be seen as anything other than a political trial. Mm, that's right. Mm. So w- I, Would it have been, though, absent those impeachments or absent the other indictments? Well, America, of course, is an electoral democracy. Although it's founded on the rule of law and it's a, a nation of laws, not of men, I think the way the ensuing campaign is going to be structured is Democrats have tried every possible means, mm. political, legal, psychological, however you label it, and they all fail. And Trump, and this is where I think the Democrats are at their most myopic, what the Democrats are doing is giving Trump the necessary platform to make him re-electable. And that's always been the very dangerous line they've been trading, of, mm. of sponsoring extreme right-wing candidates. That's the moment for me. Yeah, yeah well, I, So I think there's yeah. a culpability here which is shared across both camps, Can you just, which needs to be acknowledged. We should explain that in more detail because people may not have heard about this. So this was particularly in the midterm elections. Mm, yes. That's right. The so Democrats the, the, were funneling yes. money. Yes. To Trumpist and paying for and making ads, yes, right. In order to facilitate their pre-selection, on the understanding they would then be their their dilemma, of course, is that Biden, his greatest chance of electability is to run against a wounded Donald Trump. So they need to keep him bleeding, but nominated. I think. I mean, we're dealing with imponderables here. If Biden's vice president were to take over for reasons of death of the president or incapacitation, I think that changes significantly and Trump then has a much... I think Trump is the more likely winner of that Mm. that contest. So the Democrats are playing a very dangerous electoral game here where there are a number of balancing factors and indictment is a very, very risky way to... So this is an important qualification you've raised, but there is an alternative way of reading this or perhaps just a fact that is amidst all this and that is... Very serious allegations that go to the heart of democratic life that are not about political advantage. Yes. I mean, I think this is the appropriate question to ask. Perhaps it's not, the appropriate answer is not to say, well, it's a competitive machine and law and legality is only one way in which it functions. It also functions as a furious, furious arena for politics and ideology in a way that we don't see anywhere else in the West. Sorry, what functions that way? The US system. Right, so including the legal system. Yes, include, so the legal system doesn't stand separate from politics. Which a, is the biggest problem with the American legal system. Well, yes, it could be, but it's, uh, this is part of its genius as well as one of its fundamental flaws, that it relies... If you look, but the way I'd illustrate this is to consider that the United States has gone from being the equivalent of New Zealand. I don't mean that to knock Kiwis, but 250 years ago, a diplomatic economic irrelevance... And over the course of 250 years has become the most powerful nation in world history. And the great reason for that, not on its own, but one of the key reasons for that is not great leadership. When you assess the American presidency, what were the 47th president, the 46th man to hold the office, five of them have been indisputably good. You don't need great leadership. You need a system which is robust and can survive poor leadership. So I still think that holds. We're not in a civil war moment. We're not even in a Watergate moment. And and this is my final point in this 
monologue is to consider Watergate as a validation of the US system, mm, mm. Uh, which didn't have to proceed to an indictment and a legal case. And I'd hope we might see a diluted form of that if we get a Fordian intervention on behalf of the Democrats. My question is, would a Fordian moment work? Would it, would it actually be a wise thing to do in the circumstances, given the nature of Donald Trump as a figure, the polarised nature of American politics and society, and the idiosyncrasies of Donald Trump's personality? Uh, well, I, I think it's the, if you ask me that frontally, I'd say it's the least worst option. I think if you pardon, you deny Trump his key platform over the next 18 months. And isn't surely... Isn't that what the Democrats should be aiming to do? They gave up, folks. They gave up. Well, well, they, well could, they couldn't well, defeat they, him, folks. They, they could say that, but it also means Trump has to run on his record, on his proposals. At the moment, he can fire up a crowd because of, of the, the political witch trial he's able to caricature. And to deny him that seems to me to be a, an electoral strategy the Democrats. It's a risky one. But it's a risky one anyway, I think. A, an imprisoned Trump, a Trump in, in, a, think, in an orange is, jumpsuit, that's also not the candidate I think that there, Biden needs to, yeah, to face. I do think there are two things we're missing here. I mean, a huge part of the problem here, and this is another platform on, on which Trump is running, and that's a politicized Justice Department. I don't know about you, Tim. I never thought I would live to see the day when a Republican Party turned against the instruments of law and order in American life and mm. campaigned virulently and effectively mm. on the diminishment of courts and federal investigators alike. I mean, that... Or, that, or the American left ran on their emboldenment. Precisely. <laughs> the emboldenment yes, it, it, a, there's been a transposition, hasn't there? The, yes, the, there has. The left are now pro-institution and the right are anti. But again, I'd ask you to, to use our, our Watergate uh, framework there, that Nixon's first and greatest crime in that recording from the 23rd of June... 1973, is when he's seeking to use the institutions of government, That's particularly right. the FBI right. and CIA, to conceal the burglary. So it's not new, I think, this use of institutions for political purposes. And it's been done by both of course. sides across US history. But look, I, I think here's the irony and here's the tragedy of it. Um, I don't think the Justice Department has any choice but to prosecute the former president for especially, especially the latest series of indictments because of the importance. I mean, I'm not going to make any value judgment about the previous indictment about classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Um, there's, there's something else going on there. There's something else that's important, but it also doesn't have quite the same heat, I think, quite the same uh, electoral consequence as the most recent indictment. It has to be prosecuted because there was something fundamental that was struck at the base of a key operation of a mature representative democracy. At the same time, the proper instrument, the proper body at which these particular crimes should have been identified and censured was the second impeachment hearing. Mm. The problem is that devolved into, or maybe it was orchestrated as, and, and sorry, the reason I say that is because it was bipartisan. I know that it was not evenly bipartisan, but it was bipartisan nonetheless. The problem is the House Select Committee investigating the uh, 6th January Capitol riots was designed from the beginning as a something 
approximating a show trial and as a media spectacle, which meant that it could never achieve the votes that it needed to for impeachment in the Senate. It never could. It, it corrupted the very conditions within which that appeal could be made across the aisle, even when there was sympathy. Even when there was sympathy. I think here I think the, the testimony of someone like Lamar Alexander is really important. He had no truck with what the president, what former president was trying to do. And yet the very way in which, the absolute nature through which uh, the, the January 6th committee uh, framed the issue meant that he couldn't lend his assent to impeachment proceedings against the president. That was the right political instrument for the crimes that took place following the uh, November 2020 Election. That was the right context within which those crimes could be identified and the proper deterrent leveled. But because of the way that the impeachment trial was framed as a show trial, as a partisan exercise with only Republican outliers taking part against the president, it seemed to, again, obviate or, or corrupt the possibility yeah. of a further investigation. As soon as it then goes to the Justice Department, which you're right, Tim, is already then partisanly defined or partisanly tainted. Uh, it means that uh, justice cannot be done in a way that can have that uh, healing or reconciling effect. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, I think that's very good. In connection to that, the other observation I would make is that there is a question of degree here, but not of, not of kind, that uh, American elections are recurrently the source of dispute. I think Trump takes it further, though one could ask, all that mayhem and violence and death on January 6th didn't bring the prospect of a coup any closer, of actually properly, through force, challenging the result. The last, if you looked at 2000 or 2016, now I know I'm not saying that Gore and Hillary Clinton are Trump-like, but they frame an ensuing Republican administration as in some way democratically illegitimate yeah, because right. of the way that power was secured. I think Gore, Trump, how does Gore... Well, I, I think certainly the first four years, if not the first, certainly the first nine months until 9-11 of W, uh, w Bush, is the caricature from the left is that this is an illegitimate mm, administration true. given to us by the Supreme Court. Yeah, but, but Gore's not fanning flames. He's not asking. No, I'm saying I there's, mean, the difference, there's a the, well, difference of degree, Gore as, played I, as up I've to suggested. It. Gore, Gore played up to it in the, in the way that he introduced himself, for instance, as I was the next president of the yes. United States. So, so there was a yeah. kind but of concession of the yeah, public. I, 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 I think I that's different in concept. But he was also no, gracious. Not, it, he was also gracious and, dare I say, presidential exactly. in the way that he accepted the Supreme Court's ruling. That's uh, what I mean. And also, perhaps one of your tipping point dates might be 9-11, unless that's become hackneyed. But 9-11, of course, changes... Everything. Well, it sure. gives us that one last great moment of, of bipartisan can consensus. I, can I say and, that, Tim, this, this is precisely why, this is precisely why Walid and I sort of talked and argued at length against those Democratic uh, attempts after the 2016 election, those parades, those demonstrations, not my president. That very act, the very attempt to try to find illegitimacy in the transfer of, of power, mm -hmm. I think you're right. It seeded the ground for precisely what we saw in 2020. Can, can yeah. I, while I clearly agree with that, because I said it, um, I do think we need to draw some distinctions. There is a difference between having a march that says, not my president, where what you're not saying is, let's overturn the election result. What you're saying is, this president doesn't represent me. He's so shocking, and I want the world to know that he doesn't reflect me, he doesn't represent me. That's a fundamentally different claim to you stole the election. The closest you get to that is with the Electoral College argument, but no one was arguing that the Electoral College 
had done something corrupt. They were arguing. Oh. No, they weren't. Mm. They were arguing that the system itself is unrepresentative. Well, I wasn't going to argue that. I was going to argue the whole Russian interference. Yeah, that's right. that's, exactly so that's right. a better argument. It has right? at least some analogue in Trump's challenging of 2020. So that's a better argument. I agree. And that dossier... That yeah, I just don't think, yeah. And there I really blame probably the way the media jumped on that more than the Democrats. Mm. So I think by turning that into a search for this thing, so I understand there was an impulse there, but I, I just don't think it's fair to say the way the Democratic Party has responded to loss in 2016 is in any way comparable. Oh, no, I think it is. I think the more I argue this, the more convinced I am What's the comp- that they've created a culture of the questioning of electoral legitimacy. Begins in 2000. In fact, it goes back to 1877. If you want an even longer <laughs> an, an analogy, sure. I suspect I suspect the trails and, of that and both, are strong. And, but both sides have been complicit. Not 1960. In the same way. But this is where I, I want to say I think you're looking at a marked difference, if not a rupture, where you're talking about a defeated presidential candidate saying the election was stolen in an no epistemologically fractured no, the, political climate. Yeah, I think the point you're making, Timothy, is important but I can't see it through to its conclusion because there is a difference in concept here. So if you want to talk about corruption of political culture, okay, sure. But that's not the same thing as, as a defeated Yes, well, I, I hear you, Ali, but I, I think Trump is the inheritor of a context more than he's the creator of it. And he's, he's using a strategy more extremely that Democrats have, have normalised. And it's very hard now for the Democrats to step back from that. I can't wait to see the letters, Scott. It's going to be great. Mm. It always is when Timothy's here. Thank you so much for coming in again. Well, it's always a delight to be able to enlighten both of you guys. (laughs) And I'll look forward to my my subsequent invitation. Do you know what? I don't disagree. (laughs) Besides... Timothy's going to host the show one day when Scott isn't. We're going to talk about cricket. Didn't we decide that? We did. Yeah. Yes, Timothy Lynch, sounds... Professor of American Politics at the University of Melbourne, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We'll see you next week in the second of our Not Quite a Series. So can I ask you two a question? I, I realise that we need to kind of break up. And maybe, Sinead, we can actually keep this in the, in the, in the pod. When, when Jimmy Carter was elected in 1976, an unlikely Democratic candidate on all sorts of fronts, there is the overwhelming sense of a kind of uh, sigh of relief that the long Watergate nightmare, the dirtiness, the complicity of the Nixon Ford years is just over. In other words, there almost seemed to be a kind of tending towards or longing for democratic cleanness. And there was something clean and reassuring about mm, Carter. Just not, just not competent. Not, I agree. I agree. I initially thought that the election of someone like Joe Biden as a, okay, Joe Biden's mm-hmm. no Jimmy Carter and Jimmy Carter's no Joe Biden. But wasn't there a kind of longing for decency? Yes. And, 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 and the first 18 yeah. months of the Biden presidency, oh, thank God we don't have to talk about Trump anymore. There was mm-hmm. a... There was a kind of relief. There was, and then that decency evaporated when we left on the tarmac at Bagram Airport. Yeah, thousands, that's right. Thousands of translators and yeah. school teachers and women and girls. And this was the new decency of American power under Biden. Yeah, Don't true. buy it. No, the no. other whataboutery, if we engage in that, is if you consider Trump and Nixon, their actual crimes against the invasion of Iraq, the uh, the Vietnam War, uh, Obama 
uh, intervention in Libya and abandoning Syria. Hundreds and thousands of, of men and women die. Impeachment? Yeah, indictment? No. But a few erratic phone calls from Donald Trump, mm. and we're all convulsed by the, the legal... I'm with you with the first part. That's, that's minimising, I think, the findings. Well, well I don't yeah. mean to say that Trump, therefore, should get off. But his crime in, in grand historical perspectives are really very minor no, I understand that, but, compared to but his predecessors. It's the nature of it, right? So I agree. I consider the invasion of Iraq worse hmm. than Trump trying to overturn the yeah. election result in the grand... It'll kill fewer people, yeah. right, in that sense. But trying to overturn the election result is democratically worse in the sense that it goes to the heart of the democratic system. And it ushers in an age of illegitimacy. Right. So so I would say Iraq, and believe me, uh, Iraq hurts me, but that's policy error, which is different to something that's almost democratic infidelity. Oh, wow. Mm, I know where, you, where, where you're coming from that, and it, I've got it, a, and, and, yeah, some sympathy. And so the argument isn't what's better or worse. The argument is they're different. Yes, they, they are. They are assessed yes. and punished in different ways in different yes. forums. Yes. And the appropriate punishment for what Trump did may well have been impeachment. Yes, or, I mean, you, yeah. yes you couldn't tenably argue that because Trump hadn't led a disastrous foreign war, therefore he should be given more latitude no. when it comes to high crimes and misdemeanors. Or no, that I'd every actually, foreign policy decision should result in impeachment. Yes, or, it, it, exactly, yeah. exactly. But I, I wonder in, in 100 years' time how Trump will compare with his immediate predecessors, all of whom waged significant war in Muslim lands, and yet it's Trump that went to prison. Yeah. But well, I'm not sure he will. Mm. <laughs> faces the prospect of it. That would get him elected, I think. It seems a really hard case to prove to me. Again, he's got to be wounded, but nominated. And, yeah. uh, the, and I, I the protected the, political the speech. I, I admire the way that Jack Smith uh, differentiated between the rights of a political candidate, like any citizen, to engage in certain forms of speech, even to lie. But then his attempt to separate that off from the context that those lies created. But I don't think that separation is ultimately successful. Um, you, find, mm. you find lies running through every page of the indictment. And if you come to say that, as you suggested, Tim, that maybe he believes that the election really was stolen, or maybe he simply thinks that it's for the good of the nation that mm -hmm. someone like Biden, who represents an existential threat to American democracy or American greatness or whatever, and therefore he is in good faith trying to use whatever means he has at his disposal. Yes. To, I mean, those are powerful defenses. Yes, they are, but it also tempts the the, the problem that you will fight, because you, you say the general welfare is the objective of all government, you will find crimes that fit <laughs> its negation. That's true. And yeah, that's the problem that's right. Jack Smith had. I love America and domestic tranquility, and I will find every example where Trump threatens that. Mm. That's not, that's not you asking whether he violated a law. That's whether, whether he violated your worldview. Mm. All right. We have to do boring stuff now, Tim. That was great, Tim. Thanks, Scott. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.